Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back. This episode, we're going to be talking about my favorite new model of therapy, the internal family systems theory or internal family systems model and how it has changed my clinical practice. So for this episode and part two, where I talk about IFS and how it changed me personally and professionally, how I think about my career, my profession. Um, for both of those, I recruited Dr. Sapna Doshi because I've realized something about myself um, that I really love this podcast, but I really love the interview episodes and I really love episodes where I get interviewed. I struggle with even doing what I'm doing now is just talking into a computer screen. I could do it for a little bit for the intros. So, um, so you'll see more of that going forward. So I'm excited to, I'm excited that Sapna was willing to come and just ask me about it because it's something that, as she says, she's not as familiar with. So what to expect in this episode? We will, I'll answer the questions, what is IFS, inter- internal family systems, and why should you be interested or care about it? I'll talk about how I learned about it. Uh, including my angry parts that I hadn't learned about it sooner. Um, I will talk about how it's influenced my one-on-one practice, some of the biggest shifts that I've been seeing, um, and they've been pretty transformational, like truly pretty incredible. After all this, these years doing therapy, I wish I would have known about this sooner. I really do. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how IFS might be able to merge with other therapies or not. So you'll hear all my thoughts on that as well. So I'm really excited to get started with you. So without further ado, let's dive in. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating and weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I I developed this after a workshop we did recently. And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are professionals versus individuals. So 
Uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, But if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight, or in your opinion, they just, they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body. And as a professional, you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, but you're also, um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust, but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire? So I created this free step-by-step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing. Um, And it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give or say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. We have learned on this podcast, and by we, I mean, I have learned that I don't love doing solo episodes by myself. So I find the energy of someone asking me questions and having a conversation much more fun. So in the interest of making this, if you've been listening for a while, I'd be interested what your thoughts are about my old solo episodes, but either way, I really enjoy having conversations. One of my absolute favorite things about this podcast and just generally about life. So I have recruited the Dr. Sapna Doshi to come back. Uh, the, who was, I got a lot of great feedback on our episodes. Um, so she kindly agreed to come back and ask some questions about some topics that I wanted to come and talk to you all about because they are really important. And I think it's really shifted a lot of the things that I've done in the past six months. So we're going to be talking today about the internal family systems uh, theory or paradigm and how it has shifted uh, my practice and a lot of the ways I see things. So thank you so much, Sapna, for come hanging with me again. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited. I know you've been diving into this world of IFS, internal family systems, And I have a feeling I'm going to learn a lot from you today and everyone else as well. So I'm excited. Awesome. Well, yes, as you know, I get kind of into stuff and I go down rabbit holes and that's what's happened. So yeah, super pumped. Yeah. Okay. Well, so for myself and all of our listeners, 
What is internal family systems? Can you just kind of start with an overview of what it is? Yeah. So I, in prep for this, pulled some information from their website um, because even though I've, this is how I learn. I'm like, I'm not an expert yet, but um, so I I don't want to, I want to do it justice as much as possible. So internal family systems is a powerfully transformative evidence-based model of psychotherapy We believe, or the IFS community, I suppose, believes that the mind is naturally multiple, and that is a good thing. And I'll talk in a moment about what that means. Um, But we often think of the mind as like, we all have one mind, one body, and we have thoughts, beliefs, emotions, right? We learned that in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, But IFS, a big tenet is that it's naturally multiple. We have multiple inner personalities or inner minds within us. And they believe that our inner parts contain valuable qualities and our core self knows how to heal, allowing us to be more integrated and whole. In IFS, all parts are welcome. IFS is also a movement, a new empowering paradigm for understanding and harmonizing the mind and thereby large large human systems or larger human systems. And this is a paradigm that can help people heal and helps the world become a more compassionate place. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that in a future episode about how IFS has kind of shifted my personal one-on-one practice and some of the work that I do with clients. Um, but it's also shifted, I'd say, some broader ways I think about the field, but also about humans in general in like my personal life. And, and so um, we'll touch on that a little bit more in the future. Um, and IFS Institute is really committed to, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusions, um, and working to help bring together people of all ages, races, religions, gender identities, sexual orientations, classes, ability, language, or cultural backgrounds, um, into the community. So the message from their website is you're welcome here and all of your parts are welcome here too. Um, And the mission of IFS Institute is to bring more of what they call self-leadership to the world. And um, I was thinking about, as I was prepping for this episode, you know, we're obviously not going to go into a whole in-depth what is the model. I, I learned about it in six months, but, you know, there is some of it that can be learned relatively quickly and intuitively it's we all have different parts of ourselves usually multiple parts um and many of us have parts that are protector parts that have developed over the course of our life for an important role but a lot of these protector parts can get um sort of demonized if you will and negatively labeled and even in therapy we can accidentally argue with these protector parts Um, So some common ones that are protector parts uh, in many of us, including me, would be like our self-critic is a a part that we're always like, the self-critic is we need to challenge it or we need to act more compassionately, but it can sometimes make this part feel um, shunned or not wanted. And so in IFS, we kind of turn towards the self-critic and we get really curious about the role that it's played throughout our life. and the positive attention behind that part of ourselves and perhaps what it's protecting. So um, protector parts are always also connected to exiled parts or these are more 
hurt parts of ourselves, sometimes very young parts of ourselves that are more vulnerable. Um, and yeah, there's, there's more complexity there. We'll get into some examples. There's many examples of common protector parts. Um, but that is a very rough <laughs> overview of the model just to start with. Awesome. I, it's, it's so exciting to hear about this approach, just because I, I know what you're saying, just in therapy, you can feel a little bit stuck at times. And I think that's when different parts are presenting within a person and they feel at odds with each other. So I love just how this seems to help people integrate so many different parts of themselves and so many experiences they've had. So I'm so curious how you learned about this. How did you first learn about IFS? Yeah. So I had an angry part that it took me so long to learn about it because I have found it so helpful, but I've like that angry part, I've listened to it and it's kind of like calmed down. Um, so I only learned about it probably just over six Eh, probably eight months ago or something because I joined this six-month program. Um, I learned about it right before. I'm a kind of quick action taker, so I got into the program pretty quickly. Uh, I learned about it from my beloved parent coach who I've had on the podcast, who's been a big source of um, guidance for me in terms of like, I can do my own deeper healing work. And uh, yeah, that's, I had never even heard about it at all before. And it's interesting because IFS Dick Schwartz is the developer of it. He's been doing this work and he started it ironically with um, uh, family therapy for bulimia. And he's been doing it for like four decades or something. I've never even heard of it, which is kind of interesting. And I've looked up some of the research, um, like we didn't learn about this in grad school. And the research is it, I actually meant to ask this in one of my classes and I haven't had a chance to, so I can't speak to this, but the research isn't as robust as like obviously CBT or ACT. And I wonder why that is, to be honest, if it's been around that long, is it just that it hasn't? I think there's some parts about IFS that people are like very skeptical about or like it's, but anyways, that's that's what I know so far. Yeah, it, yeah, it, you know, as you've introduced it to me and started talking to me about it, I feel like I've been hearing about it more and I don't know if that's because you've, it's in my mind now more, but I think it's catching on to more providers and I'm sure we'll learn more in general. Um, but I'm so curious about, as you've learned about this approach, how it has influenced your one-on-one work, one, one -on -one work with your clients. Yeah. So a couple of different ways. Um, one is that so, so I think I've started to use it at different, different levels with different clients for whom it makes sense to them, for whom it makes sense to me, um, especially for, well, starting with like those common protector parts, the self-critical part, that's a really common one. I think people have um, found it really helpful to perhaps instead of trying to, you know how a lot of times in therapy, people will be like, yeah, I had this thought, like I suck or they never, they don't even want to be around me. And I know I shouldn't think like that, but, and it's an opportunity to be like, uh, all parts are welcome. All of their, their thoughts and feedback are welcome. And to be like, we're going to listen to each part of you and, and what it has to say about the situation and get curious about its intention, as opposed to, you know, I actually think there's, we'll talk about this in a sec, there is synergy with 
there other therapies like therapies that do challenge thoughts. I, I don't think it has to be either or, but um, I think for a lot of people, myself included, <laughs> my self-critical part did not like being told to think differently. It didn't feel fully listened to. And I found a lot of benefit to understanding that when I am self-critical, it actually serves a protective, almost like a numbing function. It pulls me out of my deeper pain. And I think it's helped me to be like, oh, I see. Like, thank you. I actually had an experience personally a couple of weeks ago and I've been mentally feeling like really great lately, but I just, I know exactly what it was. It was my son. <laughs> the stuff he says to me gets me sometimes. And um, he told me he, it was the day that he told me he hated me, which isn't uncommon, but because he just has a lot of big feelings and um, it activated this really self-critical part of me I was talking to my husband who is a great listener and I was just like I was so mad at myself like going down this like really intensely so but instead of shutting that down I was just listening and don't get me wrong in the moment it did not feel good but I, I could kind of know like this isn't all of me this isn't how I feel totally um and I think that's one of the powerful things for my clients too is like when we get stuck in these patterns that we don't like, it's not all of us. It's just a part of us. And to be like, okay, I'm going to either look at that in the moment, or even if I can't in the moment, I'm going to circle back and kind of understand the function. Um, so those are, so there's, that's one way for showed up more for me. Um, but I think also for, obviously we work and I work a lot with um, weight concerns, eating concerns, um, for the parts that have, like you said, that you might feel a little bit more stuck with, or a little bit more clients might feel more stuck with, or as a therapist, I think it's helped me to have even more compassion for the protective role of some of those parts. So like a restrictive eating part or a dieting, like a rigid dieting part might be a way to feel really in control and really pull out of some feelings of out of control or uncertainty. And it's helped me to just have even more compassion for my clients and be like, okay, that even if we don't use parts language in the session, I can think of it as like, oh, okay, that makes sense that they've been told forever that their body is bad and they should make it smaller. And so the fact that even if they're logically, they know that not eating regularly is going to impact them negatively. It's a really scary thing to do sometimes. And um, so I think it's also helped me to you know, bring even more curiosity and compassion to, to my clients at a, at a deeper level. I was just going to say this, this work that you're talking about seems like it's going to help clients get to deeper issues at hand and, um, mm -hmm. and also feel really validated along the way, which is really neat. Yeah. Uh, sure. So speaking of that, I'm curious about the biggest shifts you've seen in your clients as you've been working with them using this. Yeah. So I think a, a couple of things came, come to mind. Um, I think sometimes when I first introduced this concept of the positive intention behind a part of ourselves, it can be really hard for people to see, but sometimes it immediately clicks and they're like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, but often that's not the case, but what's been interesting, even in the, just the few months that I've been working with this model is that I've had um, people be like, I never thought I could feel this way towards this part of me that I have fought with for 
as long as I can remember. Um, so this includes self-critical parts that, this also includes um, parts that think about self-harm and like ending their life, which I know can be a really hard topic to think about for people. Um, those parts usually are trying to protect the client from pain. And it doesn't mean that we align or we do the things these parts are telling us to do, but we just simply listen and we get truly curious and we're not afraid of these parts of our clients. And as a clinician, it makes me even braver to be like, let's hear their story. Right. And it's super powerful um, because a lot of times there's so much shame about even those parts can carry the shame about like, gosh, I've you know, done this to my client or like I've harmed them or I've caused so much stress for so many years. And so there's been some pretty profound shifts in terms of that. Um, that's deeper. That's not necessarily eating or eating related. Um, the eating piece is really interesting. Um, and I'm still starting to, I'm still exploring this and I have some people coming on the podcast specifically to talk about the eating piece and they've been working with IFS and the eating piece for longer than I have. But what's really interesting, I think, in the eating world is we often think, um, and I think a lot of people come in and they're like, I want to know why I eat when I'm not hungry. I want to know the answer. Um, and the reality is for most people, there's more than one part that makes us eat when we're not hungry. So it might be trying to distract us from pain. It might be just trying to comfort us. It might also be a part trying to bring us. I actually, as I've been exploring this for myself, I've been realizing there's a part of me in the evenings that um, sometimes wants to just like eat as a way to have fun or sometimes it'll, sometimes it's eating. Sometimes it's like, I want to watch a fun show. I'm just like, I want some non-mundane things in my life. Like I want some excitement. Um, and then other times parts can eat because they're rebelling against restriction and dieting. So that could be biological or physical. Um, but it's not necessary. If we go down this, like, why do I do this? Why do I do this? What's the answer? It can be really frustrating, um, but just getting curious. And, and it doesn't always, it's not always multiple for multiple people. For some people, it's like, well, it's usually just this. Um, but that's the cool thing is like, when we just get curious and then we can be like, oh, part of me wants to go eat a marshmallow peep because my kids have some left over. Like, and just getting curious, like, what, what are you trying to do for me? This part, right? <laughs> like, um, it can be easier when you just bring that curiosity more naturally. Yeah. And I can see how that would create a lot of behavioral changes potentially as well. Um, the more you become mindful of what parts being activated and pause to reflect on that. Yeah. I think it's been very, very powerful in terms of that. And um, yeah, it's a practice, right? It's not all that different than some of the other, like we've talked about um, a lot of it's, well, yeah, I'm still kind of mulling over like this, has been really transformative for me. And I think it's just like a nice language and it's non-pathologizing, which really resonates very well with me. Um, but yeah, it can still, there's still, you see a lot of overlap with some other ways that we've been trained to think about behavior change too. Yeah. I'm so. going to have questions about that in a second, but I am curious before yeah. we move on to that. 
Um, what it means when a part is polarized and can you give the listeners myself uh, an example of what that looks like? Yeah. So I'll actually give the most common one that has come up a lot recently for, for people, um, as yeah, very, very recently. And so I've had people describing, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this polarization, a part of them who never wants to diet again, who wants to never do the weight loss cycling that they've done in the past. They've done that. It leaves them feeling like a failure, right? They don't want to ever go back to dieting in the traditional sense. Um, they want maybe a non-diet approach. Maybe they love intuitive eating, all of that. Um, and they have another part of them that deeply wants to lose weight. They want to lose weight. They want to, and, and sometimes usually the weight loss part, part that wants to lose weight is also associated with, they want to feel better. And it might also be about self-image, but a lot of times they describe, like, I just want to feel better in my body. I want to feel like I used to feel and all of those other things. And, um, that can be a really strong polarization because in, especially in, if you're following a lot of people that talk about intuitive eating, they might talk about how wanting to lose weight or focusing on intentional weight loss can impair the process of intuitive eating. So you might have fear of like, I can't even think about weight loss or want weight loss. And, um, when you talk to certain providers, providers might have some anxiety. And we've talked a lot about this in our previous podcast about, um, speaking to and giving voice to parts that want to lose weight. And so the cool thing is in this model, there's always value in listening to all parts and all parts can be uncensored and say whatever they want to say. And we want to get super curious. And one of the things that I'm thinking I will probably do, because it's been so helpful for so many of my clients is, so stay tuned if you want this down the road, but like having a little sort of like a meditation slash exercise where you're walking through getting to know each side of a part in a polarization. And IFS has this for general polarizations, but um, I think it'd be kind of cool to get, <laughs> since this polarization is so common, um, to get really curious about the intention behind the part that wants to lose weight and what it fears would happen if the other part took over and it didn't have a voice. And then the same question for the other part that might be really scared of going down a disordered eating path of going down, um, that weight cycling path of getting into a binge restrict cycle again, um, and really listening to both sides. It's sort of like if you were in a couple's therapist and you were listening to a couple that was super polarized on a topic, you're going to listen to both perspectives. You're going to have the other one just wait and say, I, I promise I will get to you. And you're going to respect and listen deeply and understand the intention behind each person's perspective in order to resolve that conflict. And um, it can be super powerful, if nothing else, to just listen to both. But then we start that integration process and the self is the self of the, the therapist and the self of the client brings the self energy. And so we want to help the parts separate out and know that they are not all of the client. They're just part of the client. So, you know, what that exactly looks like will depend on um, the client kind of being able to connect with each of these parts and hear their perspective, but it can be a, a really powerful exercise. Yeah, it sounds so powerful. And it's making me think about 
um, the acceptance part of acceptance and commitment therapy too. And that's such an important process to include in, in the dialogue, especially in, in the eating and weight related concerns that clients have, um, that they're bringing into our sessions. Yeah. So speaking of act and noticing a little bit of an overlap there, um, how do you see IFS having synergy with other therapies? Yeah, I think that it's, and this has been asked in the training that I've been in often. Um, I think it can be very synergistic. I think what you need to realize is when are you perhaps aligned with a certain style of therapy? And when are you trying to talk to a part of the client in a way that's not resonating with the client? So like, for example, um, I have a part of me that's super scientific and logical and really practical. And so if I have a client that comes in with a question about, let's say, um, the BMI and whether they should, like, this is their weight loss goal, right? And, and I might have an idea about how that might be not the best weight loss goal for them <laughs> because of what I know about bodies and, and how our bodies respond biologically. Um, if I approach them with a education-based, like logically telling them what to do, almost like challenging their thought, right? They're like, this is the weight that I'll be happy at, right? That's their thought. And so perhaps a cognitive approach would be, I'm going to challenge that. That could work for some people. And if that does, great. If that if that feels helpful to that part of them that needed to understand, okay, if I, from what we know about science, if I pursue this weight loss goal, most likely it could, let's say, increase a binge restrict cycle biologically, let's just say, I don't, I don't really have a certain person in mind as I'm thinking about this, but, but if I'm a little too invested in using a part of me to convince them, um, that can also help me as a clinician realize, hmm, why is this, that didn't seem to work, <laughs> right? Like that person didn't actually seem, and they are pretty fixated still on that weight loss goal. And it really didn't help, right? That would be one example of how, um, you know, understanding that you might be just talking to a part can help you as the clinician be a little bit more flexible, but you can still use a lot of the tools and therapy strategies that we've used, um, That's sort of a CBT example. Uh, Like you had said, I think there's more probably synergy within acceptance and commitment therapy and ACT. I think that there's a reason why um, a lot of the things you and I talk about, about getting curious about what comes up for us as clinicians with in the space, in the room with our clients um, is so powerful. It's because it's very similar. It's just a little bit different language and it is a different way to think about it. like it's, I don't know, it's, it can be for me a little bit more user-friendly of like, oh, it's just a part of me. <laughs> but um, I think the same thing goes with ACT where it's just like, oh, uh, there's, I'm getting a little bit too fused with this identity that I need to convince them that they need to not have this weight loss goal, or I need to make sure I'm the person that can help them, right? Like I'm too fused with like, I got to be able to help them quickly or whatever kind of stuff we, um, yeah. And so I'm sure there's lots of other ways that it can be synergistic, but the way that I thought about it is 
you know, it helps me embody um, self-compassion for myself and for other people, because we all have parts of ourselves that maybe are harder um, when they come up for us to accept. <laughs> and uh, so I, I found it's kind of just helped me embody that. Um, yeah. Uh, that's yeah I really love that I think um it, similar to other therapies it's so nice to be able to in, introduce clients to these approaches but also be able to use them as a therapist it kind of helps us understand ourselves better understand our clients better and help them understand themselves better so um, so yeah, I, I so appreciate this conversation. I'm so excited about IFS and learning more about it. And I'm so glad I have you and I'm sure the listeners feel the same way to introduce us to this world and learn much more about it. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being here. And, um, for everyone next episode, we'll be talking all about how this IFS paradigm has impacted me personally, although we kind of already touched on that a little bit today, but also how it's impacted my view of the field. So make sure you come back for that one. All right, everyone. So welcome back for part two of how IFS has changed my life. This is um, our episode uh, about how the internal family systems paradigm has impacted me uh, personally and also my view of the field. And um, I have the wonderful Dr. Sapna Doshi here to talk to me about it. So welcome back, Sapna. Thank you. I am super excited to continue this conversation with you. It's I think today's uh, episode's going to be really valuable for a lot of people to listen to, professionals and and clients. Awesome. Well, and uh, just for the listener to last episode, I talked more about how IFS has influenced my clinical practice. So make sure you check that out if you haven't. And we gave a little bit more of an overview of the model. Um, so, so check that out first, if you missed that one. Okay. So I'd love to learn more about how IFS has influenced you personally. Yeah. So I had, so in, in this six month training program that I did, they have you do a lot of, um, your own, work with your own parts. Not a lot, but like there's several little, it's all self-guided meditation. Although um, I have an IFS informed therapist, but not an official IFS therapist. Um, so I'll say there's been a couple of things that have been most helpful to me. I, I would actually start with the, the part of me that likes to overwork um, and gets really anxious about being productive and doing. Um, I've done a lot of work on this part of me before coming to IFS. So I've, I felt like I had made a lot of progress with this part of me, but it felt like I was forcing it. So like when I first started my business, I was working um, the first, when I first started the podcast and first launched the program, I hit weeks where I was working like 70 hour weeks, which is really atypical for me. Cause when I was working at my full-time job, before leaving. And I was just like, I worked my work, I worked my hours, my 40 hours and I went home. Um, so I think the overworking part of me was kept in check by having like a stable salary. And then when I didn't have a stable salary, things got a little out of control. And, um, so that overworking part of me is the protector part of me. It's a part of me that tries to protect me from feelings of worthlessness, feelings of not good enoughness, um, some really painful, 
experiences. And it's really just a part of me that learns like the world likes when you're productive and when you accomplish stuff. And so basically when I started learning about IFS, I was able to basically when I, I had stopped working as much, but I was still sort of forcing it and I still didn't fully trust myself to do it. So IFS helped me to understand and connect with that part and understand its intention. And so now when it comes up, which it still occasionally does, I get really curious. And here's the thing I love about IFS is I probably, because I am so obsessed with doing, I have a hard time slowing down for meditations. So there's been many times where I've done these exercises while I'm doing something else. So a couple of weeks ago, I was on a Friday, I think either you and I had met or I was listening to a podcast or something. And I was so excited about the, sometimes my excitement can lead to overworking. So I'm like, ah, this is such an exciting idea. Um, but then it gets sort of that anxious, graspy, like overworking. And I, as I was driving to lunch with my friend, which I had planned, I just was getting curious. I was like, what is this about? And it very clearly was like, no, it's about like proving your worth. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be working from that place. Um, and I was able to just connect with that part. I'm like, okay, I see you. You're trying to protect me from that. And it, once you connect with these parts, and it's really interesting because it is a somatic experience. A lot of times for me, at least emotion will come up. It doesn't have to, that's not like the right way to do it. Um, but very easily I'm able to be like, oh, it's okay. It's that. And I'm able to more kind of fall into the, the working pattern that feels right to me, the focus on my friends and my kids that feels right to me. And it's been um, several months of feeling pretty easy and uh, like a lot more peaceful, a lot more self-trust, which is kind of the place that I got to with food all the years ago, but with work, I hadn't gotten there yet. Um, and so sometimes when we have hurts <laughs> that maybe I used food and dieting and weight loss focus in the past to distract me from some of that deeper pain, but then I didn't really fully heal it. So then overworking kind of took over. And I think I share that in just case, case that's helpful to anyone else, because it can help you be like, oh, okay, I can work with this part of me too. I'm not a workaholic. I'm not a, I'm not destined to always feel this way about work. So Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so helpful to understand like a very personal example of how you can use this in your everyday life. And having known you forever now, I, I certainly just sense that th there's just more calm and groundedness and um, assurance that you carry with yourself now than when you first started the transition from your career to the business and, and the podcast. That, yeah, so. a lot of, lot of anxious energy going on there. Well, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you could see it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me, how do you think it's influenced you, IFS? Um, how, sorry, how, how do you think it's influenced the field of weight management, eating disorders? Um, tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's been pretty interesting as I've learned about, and um, I highly recommend the book, Dick Schwartz's newest book, No Bad Parts, because it's geared towards anyone, not clinicians. Um, but they have a chapter in there, and I want to go back and reread it because I read it probably <laughs> six months ago because I just consume everything all at once. Um, but they had a chapter in there about social justice and activism work, and they had, a, um, I forget if it was the same chapter, but he has explicit discussions about 
um, systemic oppression and racism and how he believes. And I also believe that we all have racist parts inside of ourselves. So that's a whole bunch of different topics. And I promise this does relate to the field of weight management and eating disorders. Um, But so he talks a lot about, and he has some really fascinating examples of people doing activism work and how they become what IFS would call protector led. And so kind of not all that different what I was just talking about with the overworking part or the part that's so passionate about justice and reform and is fighting so hard for people to not be hurt in the way that perhaps that person was hurt or perhaps they saw other people in their family be hurt. That's called protector-led activism versus self-led activism. And so we haven't talked about it a ton on these podcast series, but this idea of self-energy Self-energy is very compassionate. It's very curious. It's very um, courageous. There's eight C's. It's very connected. And um, when we lead with these protectors, maybe the really anxious parts of ourselves or the really angry, self-righteous parts of ourselves that are like, you are wrong. You need to stop. Um, That can lead social movements in a direction that isn't perhaps the best for the world and for the actual causes that they're fighting for it maybe isn't the best way to lead activism work and so i know that um richard or dick schwartz is very passionate about this work and he's doing a bunch of different work pieces of work in this area and so it'll be interesting to see what direction that takes but um when it applies to the eating and weight management world there is the Health at Every Size movement is a social justice movement at the core. It's about respecting the diverse bodies. It's about respecting all bodies. All bodies deserve dignity and respect. And um, although there's a lot of scientific evidence supporting a lot of the things that are talked about, it is that it's for a social justice movement. And so I think understanding that, even when you and I talked about in several episodes ago, that group that I was in and where there was a talk on food addiction and everyone jumped on her and attacked and got the talk canceled. You know, I think, I think we can understand that there's anger there for a reason. People have been hurt by diet culture and there's so much complexity with the social justice intersection between race and, you know, fat phobia and all of that, that like, I'm still, I still have so much to learn, but there's, there's reason we have angry parts for a reason. And it's, it's not that those parts are bad, but if we lead with those parts, it's not necessarily good for movement and it's not necessarily good for hearing the other side. And it can get too polarized where it's like any discussion of weight loss or weight management, you're bad. Any use of the term food addiction, you're bad. And then we have these providers and our clients trying to navigate this nuance of like, but I have thoughts of how maybe I'm addicted to food. Am I allowed to say that? And providers that are like, I don't want anyone to think I'm doing harm. And so we are, we're tiptoeing around and we're so anxious that we're not able to show up with that courage to really get curious about what's going on for people. Yeah, that's, 
I, I'm so glad you're talking about this. I know you and I have had many discussions around this, um, and it's so necessary as you, as a clinician, you're trying to navigate working with uh, clients who have really complex issues that they're bringing to therapy, and also you're professionally confronted with uh, activism and um, trying to decide how you feel about all of that. It's complicated. So this is such a nice model to be thinking about in that process. Yeah, it's really helped to me at least to be like, oh, okay, that's why maybe it didn't sit 100% well with me. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if obviously we're talking about it because I think it would be valuable to bring to the table in the discussion. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. I haven't seen a ton of discussion about this in the social justice and weight space, but our body social justice space, but um, it's possible it's happening and I haven't seen it. So yeah, Yeah, really cool. So what do you wish more professionals knew about healing people from disordered eating and weight related concerns? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is this model has provided me, I I hope people know that at least there's this way to think about it. Um, And not that it's this model per se, but that um, being aware of what we bring to the table as professionals, but also allowing the client to bring all parts of themselves, all parts are welcome and not to be afraid of any parts and not necessarily to try to convince or change any parts of them. Um, when we can really just get curious about what the intention of the part is, often the change happens on its own. So we don't have to actually do as much work as the professional to like say the right thing or convince them of what to do or not to do. We can just get super clear on what brings it brings up in us. And if we're getting, I gotta, I gotta convince them to do this, like, I have to convince them to not try to lose weight, let's say, right? When we get less invested in that, we can then we can just bring that what IFS would call self-energy. And it's actually, it feels better and it's less work as a cl- provider um, because you don't have, to have all the answers, which is actually a relief. Yeah, I feel like it clears up room in the therapy dynamic to really get to the deeper issues for the client when we can, as clinicians, really address our own stuff and making sure that that's not center focus of the work that we're doing together with clients. Right, yep, yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, last question I have here is, you know, like myself, I'm sure other clinicians are gonna listen to this podcast and be really interested in learning more about IFS. And so any recommendations for people looking to build their knowledge base in the areas of IFS and eating and weight? Yeah, I actually would recommend based on all the stuff that I've done thus far, which isn't a ton. um, I would recommend listening to the book, No Bad Parts, um, Dick Schwartz's newest book. Um, I haven't listened to his other books. And when I say listen to, you could read it. I just am an audiobook listener, but it's cool because there's exercises in it um, that I found really powerful. I didn't even mention my headache experience, but I had like a headache for multiple days. And then this little somatic headache exercise in there, I did it while doing the dishes and my headache went away, which was freaking fascinating to me I was like all right that's evidence when my skeptical I have like a lot of skeptical parts I will say it I get excited about stuff but I'm super skeptical so throughout all this I've been like eh, 
this BS? Like, I don't know. But um, so I, I think that would be a great one in terms of the, the IFS and eating and weight concerns piece. Stay tuned on that. I have one guest coming on soon after this that um, I was going to do this episode after. because I was like, I need to know more. But anyway, this is what I know now. Um, but there are people in the eating and weight space. So stay tuned for this podcast. And I'm continuing to look for more resources and I will be putting out more and more. So make your, make sure you're on listen, following the podcast and also um, listening on my email list because I will be having more on this topic. But that's where I would start. I did like the online circle program too. And that's open to not just uh, clinicians. You, anyone can do that. And uh, it's six months. It's a lot of content, but it, um, that's an option too. If, if people are wanting to like, delve in even more. So that's awesome. I'm going to look up some of those resources and I really can't wait to hear more of the podcasts to come related to this topic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. It's way more fun than asking myself the questions. <laughs> yeah. It was fun to, to have you be on the other side of this. You have so much, uh, awesome information to share. And it's nice to hear from you as the guest. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for being here and uh, we'll see you next time. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from a mom's podcast. Make something from a mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.